Um, now, I want to... As, as we go through the Book of Mormon, I want to talk for a second about situational awareness. I think it's critical when you understand uh, why prophets are preaching what they're preaching to understand exactly what's going on around them. For instance, doesn't it make sense if you're reading our old general conference talks and you're reading a talk by, by an apostle to kind of know what, kind of, what period of time we're talking about and what was going on around them? Well, this is certainly true as we get into Messiah and we need to understand historically what is going on and then you'll understand very clearly what's being said. This is, this is, this is kind of cool here. All right. So we're going to get this moment. Mosiah 25. Everybody's camped out now in Zarahemla. Here they are. Who's there? Well, first of all, let's remind ourselves that the people of Mosiah, the King Benjamin's people, are in Zarahemla. How did they get there? Quick reminder. Had they always been there? No, they've only been there probably less than 100 years. How did they get there? What's that? Yeah. Did, did, Lehi, did, did Lehi ever go to Zarahemla? That's like a multiple guess question, right? Did, was, was Lehi ever in Zarahemla? No. No, remember that they land, the original land of Nephi, that there's a place there, then remember Nephi separates from his brothers and he goes a distance off, this is now the land of Nephi, and then they're going to be there for hundreds of years. Then at some point it becomes so dangerous, after the great Nephi apostasy, you remember that Mosiah, the son of Benjamin, says, we got to go, and God tells them to move. And they're going to come out of the highlands and they're going to go down in there. They're going to get down into Zarahemla. Uh, I'll separate them by about two weeks of travel between them and where the Lamanites were. They're now down in there. So was Nephi ever in Zarahemla? No. Was Jacob ever? No. That was hundreds of years earlier. This is King, this is King Mosiah and then Benjamin and the son of Mosiah. They finally get to... Now, they get into Zarahemla, and who's already in Zarahemla? The Mulekites. This is where the Mulekites, and the Mulekites were the son of Zedekiah. Okay, so they had come from Jerusalem, but they were missing a couple of things. Their scriptures, and that then corrupted their language. Now, why is that important? What, why that's important, especially for those of us that have a really kind of strong belief that this is a Mesoamerican type setting for this, is that this means that the Mulekites landed in an area that was already well peopled with, uh, first of all, the Olmecs and the Kishimaya. So they who have their own traditions. Now that means you've got the people of Mulek who have their traditions of the, of the Law of Moses, but no written way to hold on to that and their own language. So guess what happens for these, uh, what happens to their language and their religion? 
it gets diffused, it gets mixed, right? In the same way that, uh, again, when we were in Greece and they were, they were talking to us about how for, year, for, for so many hundreds of years the, the proud Greeks had their mythology and Zeus and, and Diana and uh, Artemis and Athena and all those kind of things. And here comes Christianity and it infuses in there. And so these people uh, then said, we're going to mix the two. So now we love our belief in a female deity, Athena, Diana, and here comes Christianity. So it's an easy step for us to now infuse Christianity and now worship the Virgin Mary. That becomes, it's a nice mix. We, we love that set. We can hold on to some of our traditions. We hold us on, on to some of theirs. It's a blending. It's a mix. Okay? This is what would have happened to the Mulekites. The Mulekites were hundreds of years living in this area, taking the Law of Moses stuff, being infused with Mayan traditions, mixing all that, so you get this blending, and it's kind of a new, separate religion. We're going to talk about that in a second, because we, because we can see it for what it is. Okay? Yeah? You can see the same thing that happens in the southern of um, New Mexico. Yeah. when they were conquered by the Spanish, we'll take Catholicism and mix it with our stuff and we're going to have a blending of a kind of a new religion kind of thing. And I believe that that's, that's the religion that when Mosiah brings his people and the Nephites and they come down into Zarahemla, there is a religion and a people, even though there's, there's common ancestry here, we're both Israelites, there, there was a set religion and a way of believing for these Mulekites that was very separate from what Mosiah was bringing into their midst. So that would mean that when King Benjamin is preaching and they're coming to the temple, do you think, so the Nephites would have probably come to the temple. What about the Mulekites? What about the people of Zarahemla? Probably a lot that didn't. There would have been some that were converting to King Benjamin, and they might have been there, but I believe that there would already have been a certain group of the Mulekites who weren't going to show up at the temple that were going to hold on to their native religion. Or they're going to hear it, but not necessarily commit. Does that, does that make sense? That becomes really, really important in just a second. To understand that there is a, there's an alternate religion running alongside the, the religion of Benjamin. Yes, and we're not saying Christ shows up and everybody, the world's all Mormon. You know, ain't happening. Because people are going to hold on to their beliefs over time. Okay? Alright, so if you, if you understand that part, so now in the middle of Zarahemla, we have, we now, in, in this, at this moment in time, we have the people of Mosiah, and then who else shows up? The people of Alma. Remember, Alma is now gathered. They've now come out. Took them about 12 days to make it in there. So they've now landed in Zarahemla. And right behind them comes who? 
the people of Limhi. King Noah's, the remnant of King Noah's people, Limhi, they're led by uh, Ammon and those guys, and now they're all here. So, so now for the first time in a long time, decades, all the Nephites are gathered to, back together in one spot where they have been scattered in two areas for about 100 years. Does that make sense? So who all, but who all else is there? The Mulekites. And chapter 25 is going to tell us that you take all the Nephites combined and they're not even close to being as large as the Mulekites. The Mulekites is the much larger body, some of which who were converting and, and a lot of which who weren't. And all of these guys combined aren't nearly as numerous as the Lamanites. They're bigger than them all. Why? Because, let's, let's keep in mind, who's a Nephite in the Book of Mormon? You, what's the definition of a Nephite? Yeah, they're not a Lamanite, but specifically they are people who believe in Nephi and believe in what he taught. Okay? Those are Nephites. If you convert, you become a Nephite. Who are the Lamanites? People fighting against Nephi. So does that mean that the vast that, that all the Lamanites were from Lehi? No, in fact, most of them weren't. Most Lamanites that we're talking about are not even related to, to Lehi. The Le Lamanites are just the ones that are not Nephites. And so that's why you'll see these big battles between the Nephites and the Lamanites, and lots of Lamanites are killed. And then they go off, and five years later they attack again. And they're numerous as the sea. Where do all these Lamanites keep coming from? That's because they keep mixing with all of the indigenous people that are already there. They keep gathering these people to fight against the Nephites. Okay? All right. So there's, there's the groups that we have. Questions on this so far? Right. Now that said then... Let's let's go to um, let's let's go to Mosiah twenty six because now they're all combined and they're going to hear the stories and, and they're going to weep and be happy and they're hearing about Abinadi and they're hearing about all the things that have happened and we have kind of this big fireside with all the Nephites okay and whatever Mulekites wanted to be part of this now. All this becomes really important for this moment. So that you understand really, really what's going on here. And why this applies to us today. Um, it's important, first of all, to recognize that as Mormon was abridging the Book of Mormon, he, he, set, he created his own chapters. And you find out where the chapter breaks were if you look at the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. We've added many more chapters than, were, than existed in that first edition Book of Mormon. Now, this is one of those moments where the chapter break makes a difference. The chapter break for Mosiah 26 was not at verse 1 of chapter 26. It was about two verses earlier. So, what that means is it's, you need to see the last verse of chapter 25 
And the first verse of chapter 26 together. You put them together and now you understand what's happening. Have I lost you so far? So the last, the way that Mormon broke up the chapters was that the, the chapter break was about two verses earlier. So that really the first verse of chapter 26 is the last verse of chapter 25. And the second verse of chapter 26 is really the first verse of chapter... Anyway, yes. <laughs> so what I thought I would do is I put the two verses together in here so you can kind of see uh, exactly uh, how this works and why this becomes important. Look at verse... So ver verse 24 of chapter 25 was... After, after they got everybody together and, uh, and they were called the people of God and the Lord did pour out His Spirit upon them and they were blessed and prospered in the land. Now, simultaneously with that moment and it came to pass that there were many of the rising generation who could not understand the words of King Benjamin being little children at the time he spake unto the people. If we don't make this break, we tend to say, well, everybody got together and everything was great, and then somewhere down the road, the rising generation started falling apart. That's not what this is saying. At the same time as most of the group is accepting the gospel, there is a very large, rising, younger generation that immediately is rejecting what King Mosiah is saying and what Alma and the church that Alma is bringing into their midst. This is all happening at the same time. Came to pass there were many of the rising generation who could not understand the words of King Benjamin. Okay, now stop, because here's the other thing we need to recognize. Uh, who would have had a chance, to, of, the, of the groups, who would have had a chance to hear the words of King Benjamin? The people of Mosiah. Did the people of Alma ever have a chance to hear the words of King Benjamin? No. It happened, it happened years before. Or, or it, happened, it happened like three years ago. It was about four years ago. But didn't they record it? They, they might have been. He's not talking about reading it. He's talking about hearing it. Because it was recorded. So the key people of Alma that had gone through the experience with the waters of Mormon and all that, never had a chance to hear King Benjamin. What about the people of Limhi that, were, that didn't go with Alma, lived under King Noah, and then they, then they managed to have to get the guards drunk and they get with... Did they ever have a chance to hear of, uh, Benjamin? No. no. It gives you the sense that most of the rising generation that was falling away was not the people of Alma and it was not the people of Limhi. Most likely, the rising generation who, who were too young to hear the words of King Benjamin would have been coming from which group? The people of Mosiah. King Benjamin's... They might have sat in a tent. They might have been around. They might even have been part of the Mulekites. But they didn't get a chance to hear the words of King Benjamin. And I think that's the rising generation we're talking about. Now, that's why this, that's why this really kind of gets interesting. Now, so here, because here's, here's what we hear about them. This rising generation, they did not believe in the traditions of their fathers. Look at verse 3. 
Because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God and their hearts hearts were hardened and they would not be baptized, neither would they join the church. Okay, now, stop for a second. Look at the group, groups and their experiences that they've been through. Take the people of King Benjamin, Mosiah's people. Remember, these guys are all showing up. King Benjamin has only been dead for about three years. So remember all the committing that people were doing in the covenant under King Benjamin and our, we know our hearts are changed and we're different and we feel it and we're charged up with all of this? That's one group. Now, now we've got a second group. Alma's people. How did Alma's people do as far as the gospel goes? The waters of Mormon were newly baptized. We got, we got saved by this miraculous thing. The Lord makes the guards all go to sleep. We show up. So they had miraculous thing, and they were committed to the gospel. What about the people of King Limhi? They've been through heck. They've been through all kinds of hard things. They're anxious to find Alma and get baptized. So they roll into town right behind that, and Alma, get us baptized. We believe, we've covenanted, we just haven't been able to get baptized. We have three groups of people, newly minted converts, buzzing and still glowing, and in some cases not even dry from the baptismal font. Now these three people, and what's happening to the, their rising generation? They are immediately rejecting the gospel. Now, does that make sense? You have a hard time going, wait a minute. It's one thing if we've been, I'm a Utah Mormon and I've been Mormon for you know five generations and, the fa- and my kids aren't accepting it because they're taking it for granted. It's, it's just kind of been there forever and it's just traditional. They've never got around to getting their own testimonies. <laughs> and I get that they're kind of falling out and they're just kind of being stupid. They're, you know, their grandfather's buying it. Okay. But to have three groups of newly minted, newly baptized, newly covenant groups, and their rising generation is falling out, they can't even get to the baptismal font. Why is that? Why would they reject it? They're being surrounded by buzzy, happy, newly minted members. They're 16. They're going to be stupid anyway. There's only 13. Yeah. It was all stupid. Yeah. Yeah, they know more than their parents. What do they know that their parents don't? Everything. But where are they getting it from? Their surroundings. The world. What does the world consist of for these people? What is the draw for this rising generation that is so enticing? It's such a pull. It's such a draw that they will turn their back on newly minted, baptized parents and go another direction. That's the key question here. Something about this alternate religion that they're experiencing is so powerful that it overwhelms what their parents are still excited about. Does that that, that make sense? So the real question here at this moment is, what was the alternate religion that was so incentivizing and such a draw that it would pull them 
out of the tent and away from their parents and take them in another direction that sounds more better than what my parents are trying to teach. Even though my parents are still experiencing that change of heart and they're still excited, this other thing is going to be better than what they've got. Because the carnal sinful state? Yeah, well, so we guessed that there would probably be something carnal and sensual. Most likely similar to the children of Israel's creation is the other gods. It's the other. Easier gods. It's the easier gods. Yeah, not do as stuff. Yeah, there you go. In fact, are we going to have to, after uh, President Monson spoke, are we going to have to change some of our Mormon memorabilia? You, you know, where we're out, we're we'll, we'll out the, the CTR, choose the right rings. Are we going to have to change it now? We're going to have to change it to what? Choose the harder right. So it's not going to be CTHR. Choose the harder right, not the easier wrong. Okay. There's going to be an incentive here that's going to pull them away. And what do we know about this alternate religion that was such an incredible draw for this rising generation? Let me, let me give you a hint. If this is the rising generation... We'd, all, we'd only have to look about 10, 8 or 10 years, and you could actually see it encapsulated in adults and being taught. We have to look up that word, habiliments. Yes, habiliments. Yes. I had to look that up. Yeah, we're going to get to that one in a minute. Okay? All right. If you go 10 years of history in the Book of Mormon, guess where it gets you? Alma 1. What do, take, take, a, take a peek for a second. What are we talking about in Alma 1? It's 10 years down the road that would, where this rising generation would have been fully invested in this alternate religion. Nabor. It's Nabor. Okay? Now, um, Nahor is, we're, we're, we're going to call him an antichrist. But, I need, but let's, let's talk a little bit about this alternate religion and how it works. Because, you, again, you have to picture what an incredible draw this is. And while we're doing this, think about our kiddos. Think about our youth that are being surrounded by Nahorism today. Because they really are. The parallels on here is pretty is pretty scary. Okay? First of all, one of the things about Nahorism is that they're going to use flattery when they recruit. Now let's take a step back. There's one more thing we need to put into place here. Okay? That I can read, there are two major attacks that critics of the church in the Book of Mormon use to attack believers. Probably more, but I'm going to put them into two major lumps here. And, and by the way, we kind of see this today. Uh, one way to attack a believer is to mock them. You're going to mock them. What's the best case of mocking in the Book of Mormon? The great spacious building, right? 
They're up there, and what are they saying from the great and spacious building? If I'm mocking, what am I saying? You're what? You're so stupid. To yeah, me. I can't believe that you believe that. Yeah. I thought you were smarter. Yeah, it's so stupid. What are you guys doing? I can't believe you guys believe in this. What an idiot! <laughs> and then we're mocking. Okay, so that is one way to attack. You revile, you attack, you belittle, uh, and they were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers. Now. The result of mocking to a, to a group of believers is what? What was the goal? For those that were the recipients, think about the, the tree of life. Those that were the recipients of the mocking, how did they react to the mocking? They become ashamed. And they slink off into forbidden paths and they're lost. When we get mocked, the idea is to belittle us, put us down, Make us ashamed and we wander off. Does it work if you're trying to recruit to your organization to mock people? No. Does it? This political campaign is a good example. Mocking doesn't work really well if you're trying to win them to your side. If you want to win somebody to your side, there is another way that you attack, and it's called what? Flattery. Flattery. Yes. <laughs> Flattering. <laughs> flattering is great. And I, I spent some time trying to think, okay, what's the difference between mocking and flattering? What is the difference between uh, mocking and flattering? Well, flattery, you're complimenting them. You're yes. building up their ego. And mocking, you're criticizing and trying to bring them down. Right. Now, here's the crazy thing. When I'm, if I'm flattering you, who I'm still mocking. Who am I mocking? You. Not so much you. Everybody else. I mock everybody else. But it's not respectful. No, it really isn't. It's, so I call it false praise and elitism. Building someone up by mocking those around them. It's one thing that I, if I say, you're too stupid to be doing what you're doing. I can't believe you're that stupid. It's another thing if I say, you're smarter than them. You, are, you know better, and you're smarter than they are. Come join me. They're stupid, you're not. They're, they're deluded, you're not. You're better than them. Join me. So if I'm trying to flatter, how well does flattering work? That's right. Those of us that believe in our candidate are better than those idiots in that other camp. We know more. They're idiots. And come vote for us because we know more and you're smart enough. Don't get sucked in by that dumb stuff. You're smarter than that. So, so this flattery thing, if you're trying to recruit, the flattery thing comes by mocking everybody around you. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So we get a, a little flattery uh, in the Book of Mormon. Nice examples. Interestingly enough, we're going to talk about this in a second, Mosiah is about to change the government in a big way. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. 
They did deceive them with flattering words, and as a result of flattering, they did cause them to commit many sins. The result of flattering will be that it's all right to sin. Not just all right, but that it needs to be celebrated. You need to be on the cover of the national magazine. We're not staying in the shadows. We're coming out. We want everybody to know ourselves. And celebrate. Well, that's because neighborism taught that you'll be saved no matter what you do. The, uh, you got to underpin it. If I believe that if everybody's going to be saved, then why, am I, and we'll talk about this in a sec, why would I have to attack the church? To make it all right, and because what is the church believing? That there is a Christ, that there is resurrection, that there is a judgment day, that there is punishment for sins, and that's kind of an impediment to what I'm trying to get done. Because part of the flattery is you come my direction, you're going to be smarter than everybody else, so you get to be elite, and the real bonus to joining us. You get rich. Isn't that awesome? Not only are you smarter than them, you're richer than them. Because, by the way, didn't God say that those that are righteous will be prospered? We know how righteous you are by your bank account. So we're really going to throw this back at them, those dumb people. They don't recognize when the, when the priests are working for their own uh, upkeep, and they're, you know, and all that. The really smart priests are the ones that are really in fine clothing, and they're really rich, and they're really smart, and they're smarter than the idiots that are working for their own thing. So join us, and you'll be smarter, and you'll be better looking, and you'll be richer. It's great. Don't buy that stuff. You're smarter than that. Uh, something that really bothers me about the campaign is... I just read where they said that a candidate had another celebrity endorse them. And I'm saying to myself, do we hold celebrities above? Those, those in a Nahor situation would say, I want to be like them. A celebrity endorsement means a, not a lot. Because I'm kind of plugging in because I want to be rich and famous and good looking like them. I want to be them. So yes, yeah, celebrity endorsement means a lot. In the Nahor viewpoint of the world, right? The dumb ones are the ones that aren't or they're going against the celebrities. They're the cool ones. The Academy Awards, I think, is epitome. <laughs> yes. What goes on here. Look at me. Look at they're me. They're not naive. They're rich. They're famous. They're beautiful. And they now inject political yes. overtones. And they make lots of money. Therefore, because I made lots of money on here, now my opinion matters than yours. Because I am rich, you're not. Therefore, what I say goes, and yours, yours is stupid. And, the, and so you ought to do what I tell you to do if you want to be like me. Can you see the seductiveness to this? This is why the flattery on this. This is, this is what got to uh, all a rising generation living in the home of recent converts. This would be just pull them right out the door. Your parents are really good people, but they're really naive, and they're going to stay poor and stupid most of their life. You're smarter than that. And by the way, so now we get back to the idea of the 16-year-old. 
There is this natural tendency in 16-year-olds, I know because they sit in my office. What do they know? Everything. They just know. This is what you're doing is stupid. It's not as popular. It's nahorous. Yeah. If you're going to decide something is right or wrong, yeah, that's really being judgmental. And you know what? We're above the judgmental. We're diverse. That means we accept everybody except for those that are judging us. And the poor. And we're not limiting. We won't limit ourselves. We won't, you know, put restrictions on Yes. Isn't that great? Nahorism. Okay? Now, side note. And, and I don't want to spend too, time, uh, too long on this because I'm going to ruin when we get to Alan 1. But, but Nahor is a product of all of this in Alma 1. Now, jumping ahead, who's going to be combating Nahor in Alma 1 and calling him, calling it what it is, priestcraft? Who's going to call him on it? The newly minted chief judge who will be who? Alma the Younger. Why would Alma the Younger know what Nahor is teaching? Because he taught it. <laughs> Alma the Younger was one of, he was the chief, he was the poster boy for the rising generation. He knew it. He taught it. He did it successfully. And I got to imagine Nahor walks in and he goes, oh yeah, you and I were in the Nahor school. I know what you're up to. Knock it off. Yeah, but now you get your high body because you're the high priest. You know more. Yeah. And you did that whole idiot conversion thing, but I'm still Nahor and I'm so smarter. Uh, we get this, we're going to get this classic battle in Alma 1 between two people who understand this alternative religion and who are both tied. But one's converted and changed and gets it. Yeah. I thought it was interesting in chapter 26 how Alma brought, or, or he, he, he called upon King Messiah to do the judging and King Messiah said... Hold, hold on to that. Because that's where we're going to go in a sec. There's a reason for that. Because we're going to look at this and think Alma's lazy. He's just handing off the responsibility. I don't want... No. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. Hang on. Okay. So, uh, we have one other good example, I think, in the Book of Mormon of flattering. And that is, is the people at the Ramiampton. Holy God, we believe that thou hast separated us from our brethren. We believe thou hast elected us to be thy holy children. While they... Well, they mean with unbelief. Because they're the idiots. And, and by the way, the poor who built the synagogue, we ain't letting them in. How come? Because you can't pay the, the annual synagogue fees. So therefore you're not as prosperous, therefore you're not as righteous, therefore you're not as cool. That's neighborism. And in fact, when Ammonihah is destroyed, ultimately the Lamanites will come in and destroy, and nobody will go there forever, and they're going to call it forever what? The... Desolation of Nahor's. It is a monument to Nahor's ever after. And, and we won't get to that till this, till this next fall. But yeah. Okay. So good so far? Alright. So this alternate uh, belief that is so enticing and it was enticing to the rising generation and to our kids and to people that are in the church... It's flattery when recruiting. It is priestcraft. 
Now, you need to understand too that Nahorism has as its purpose something else. It's not just the lifting of me up, but it's also the destruction of the church. It's not, Nahorism is not a religion that, ha, that lives happily in coexistence next to the church. It doesn't just snuggle in and go, you believe your thing, I believe my thing, and, we're, and we'll just both have our own beliefs. It is not about diversity. It is about, in this case especially, Nahorism is about destroying the church. Any more than the then the, uh, the gay marriage thing is not about living happily with traditional marriage. It's about destruction. Because that, that is going to be too judgmental, in a sense. Yeah? It sounds an awful lot like you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. I, but, you can't, but you can't leave it alone. And especially for Nahorism, because if Nahorism is about I'm cooler and I'm richer, the problem with the church is what? It believes in Christ. It believes in resurrection. It believes in having all things in common. And you can't take it with you. It's a witness that they're wrong. And it's a witness that we're wrong. Yeah. But, but, but that also means that you're in the same way that when Paul... Remember Paul rolls in, into town in, uh, in uh, Ephesus? And he's preaching the gospel. And by the way, we're not doing idols. Well, I've, I've been in Ephesus. I've seen the statues. There were, there were people making buku's amount of money on, on the little Artemis statues, the, the Diana uh, fertility statues. They were making a lot of money to sell outside the massive temple of Artemis. And if Paul's going to show up and he's going to preach a gospel that says we don't do idols, what happens to their businesses? Oh, this is... We can't live next to Christianity. Christianity will put us out of business. Well, in this case, this church of God will put us out of business. We'll put Nahorism out of business. It, it can't live next to us. We have to. So it will be, we're not just going to flatter you to get you in. Our, our goal is going to be to destroy the church. We have to destroy the church. That's why we have all of these things. Uh, Amosai is stunning, would deprive them of their rights, for it was his intent to destroy the church of God. Uh, Alma 8, Ammonihah, the profession of Nahor's, interesting term, profession. For behold, they do study at this time that they may destroy the liberty of the people. Alma himself, in talking to Coriantin in Alma 36, says, I went about with the sons of Messiah seeking to destroy the church. I'm not just recruiting to an alternate religion. My religion to survive must destroy yours. And so many of the forces out there in today's world, it's important that uh, we not just live alongside that Christianity. It's really critical that we destroy it. Because of what it believes and how it handles it. It's a direct threat to us. Okay? Questions? Yeah. You know, I think that's interesting. That it's funny that they didn't call it like the religion of Nahor or the church of Nahor. They, they kind of refer to it in a couple of places as the profession. So it does sound a little bit more like it's, a, it's a, an, an official way of, I'm a licensed Nahorist. Well, they got 
And they got paid, so that would make it professional. Yeah. Yeah. So it really was... It was an alternate belief system, but it wasn't a church. That's why I say an alternate belief. Okay. All right. So there, there's the alternate thing. And I, and I think it's just incumbent upon us to recognize that there ain't nothing new under the sun. And we're watching this play out at a time when we're watching people that we love and dear to us being attacked. We're watching our kids under assault. And it's Nahor's in, a, in its current form. Okay. All right. Now, let's go back to Mosiah 26. And Barbara, let's take your... Oh, a couple of things here. Uh, they would not be baptized. They were a separate people as to their faith. By the way, they kind of needed to be separate. At this point, if you were going to join the church of God, what were you doing in, ter- in terms of your money and your living and all that? You were having all things in common. So they actually separated themselves out. The, the, the neighbors among the group were separate people. They would split themselves out and have their own thing. So they were separate people as to their faith. They remained so ever after. Uh, in verse 5, uh, they weren't half as numerous as the people of God, but because of the dissensions among the brethren, even among those newly minted members, this siren call of all of this carnal belief and getting rich and looking famous and being smarter is just a siren call and it would even, it would even afflict the newly baptized. I think it's interesting that Brigham Young, if you look at the history of Utah, you have, uh, we talked last time about there are 20,000 people in the surrounding areas around Nauvoo. Of those that went to Salt Lake, about 12,000. So you can see a large group didn't even make it out to the valleys. Of those in the valley, we get about 10 years in with Brigham Young, and he is on a major retrenchment Kind of thing, meaning that the, what was happening to the rising generation and many of the members who had who had shed blood and walked across the plains and driven handcarts and all that kind of stuff to finally get to their Zion, what was happening to them? At what time? When is the? Uh, if, if anybody enjoys football and they love the. San Francisco team, what do they call the San Francisco team? The 49ers. What was going in 49? The gold rush. So you got people eating sago lilies in, in Utah and starving, and here come these miners coming through on their way to California to get gold. And, and not only that, now we have members of the Mormon Battalion coming back who found the gold at Sutter's Mill. And they're coming back going, yeah, a lot of gold. Woo. Boy, I got to see that stuff. And they're even coming back going, and you know what? Last time we checked, the Bay Area is a whole lot nicer than the Salt Lake Valley. It's kind of dusty, dirty kind of thing. You guys ought to, we ought to go back to California. California's the place you ought to be. 
Pack up the truck. Move to Beverly. <laughs> That's where you ought to be. What are you doing? Stuck it out in Tooele or Delta or the Virgin River where you keep getting flooded out. Go to California where, where everything is rich and it's the golden state. You get all this enticement to say, what, what are you doing, especially to the kids? This is a really cruddy life, kids. You are, we all going to California. It will be better. Okay. And Brigham Young is having it, and, he and he's going to be saying to them, those of you who will stay will get more rich than those that follow a fool's errand and go to California after the gold. And a loaf of bread will be less expensive in Utah than it will be in California. Now, it's true today. True. <laughs> but back then, it really was true because as they, as they were lightning their loads, as they're coming across and they're in Utah, they're selling all of their stuff so they can get to California. So goods got to be really cheap during the, during the gold rush. But, you, but there was a similar thing. Yeah. But didn't Brigham Young tell some of those men from the Mormon Battalion yeah, the problem was people like Samuel Brandon and, and those that were doing that kind of thing, and then they were raising all of the tithing money that then the idea was is that they would work and, and, and collect the tithing, and then they would go back over the Donner Pass and bring it down into Utah, and that would work really well. The problem was is that when they were holding in their hands all the tithing money in California, a lot of that tithing money never made it to Utah because it may not make it to the gambling hall that was part of the mining village. Some of it did, and it was helpful. But it was amazing how much of that didn't make it. Okay. All right, yeah? It's kind of interesting to me, in both situations, you've got a group of refugees, and then you've got these teenagers that just want to be accepted. They just want everything that they left behind. Yeah. Especially those that have been living there for a long time and they had the enticement. They went to school with the, with the Mulekites and the Mulekites seemed to be having a better time. Well, yeah, they have their homes and everything, so they didn't leave it all. They there. did. And these guys are just dragging into town and if that's what's coming, and by the way, we're having all things in common. And these guys are bringing this in. That's a, that's a lot better way to live. Okay? All right. Um, now, let me mention... Uh, something else here. So they're going to deceive a lot. Now, yeah? Before you slide there, go back to that verse. It's not about dissension among the brethren. Yeah. I just wanted to emphasize that that's the, uh, there were seven, remember Zarahemla, they set up seven wards. Yes, they did. That all stayed. That's, that's what he's talking about, is dissension among the wards. Yeah. The priesthood leaders in those wards, they got influenced by the neighborism. Sure. To try and probably have something to do with having to, well, how do we deal with our youth leaving the church and not, not wanting to belong? And the priesthood brother probably have different theories of how to deal with that. How do we do this? Yeah. How do we do it? And yeah, so, well, and also, uh, Cindy makes a good point about the, saying that one of the things that may have happened here, too, is that this, this world that we live in, in North Texas, we're kind of a children-focused society, aren't we? If you're if you're a teenage if you're if you're a mom of teens, how much time do you spend driving to soccer practices and young men young women activities and all that? Okay, 
So many societies over history have anything, been anything but children-focused. Children should be seen, but not heard. The importance of kids is to go work the farm. We're focused on the adults and the kids who may not survive. We're just not children-focused. And there's a possibility here that for a lot of these people, they were focused on their own conversion and just expected that the kids would come along and, and they were targets because they weren't children, there wasn't a children-focused society. Is another possibility. Okay. All right. So, in a in a political year, I want you to want you to see one other important thing that's happening here. And it works like this. Do you remember? Do you remember? Just right off the top of the head, because of course you would, and you haven't slept since we talked about this. So you're going to remember very quickly all of those five laws that King Benjamin set up that that instigated itself into Nephite society. Here are the rules, and we're going to do things like. Don't steal. Don't plunder. No adultery. Uh, no, no manner of wickedness. There's something else I can't remember. Anyway. These were the rules. Under a king, if you're going to commit adultery under King Benjamin rule, is that a sin? Yes. Is it a crime? Yes. Under the law of Moses, or even if you're living in Saudi society today, if you're in Saudi Arabia, is adultery a sin? Yes. Is it a crime? Yes. Can you be beheaded? Yes. Uh, under that, yeah, if you're female, that's right. If you're a guy, what can you do? She was cute, and I couldn't help myself. There's a philosophy there that's really scary. Um, and so what you get is this. The, under that king, it's, it's what are sins also become crimes because it's all listed under the same package. Okay, and, and Islam was very much steeped in this. Now, King Benjamin was this way. Now, King Mosiah here, it, at, just before he dies, and we're going to see this next week, King Mosiah is going to say, I think we should change our form of government. Kings are bad if they're a bad king. Kings are good if they're a good king. Remember in the Old Testament they had judges and then they wanted kings. So we could be like everybody else. What the Nephites are going to do is we've been under kings, but we have good King Benjamin, bad King Noah. We don't trust kings. So Mosiah is going to be, just before he dies, he's going to institute what? Judges. And the whole idea of judges is that the responsibility is going to go onto the shoulders of people because you vote for your candidate, and if they go bad, then you, you got to choose it. The king, you don't get to choose. So he's preparing for that. So here comes Alma. And Alma's setting up. He lived under King Noah. Here comes Alma. He's now the head of the church. And he's got people that are committing sins, like adultery. So where is he going to go under his current understanding of how the government works? To the king. Because the fact that they're committing adultery is a crime. And it should be punished by the state. And Mosiah is going to do a very, very powerful thing. Don't misunderstand what he's doing here. This ain't about laziness and trying to pass the buck. It really isn't. He's going to say... 
Now Mosiah had given Alma the authority over the church. And it came to pass that Alma did not know concerning them, but there were many witnesses against them, and the people stood and testified in their iniquity and abundance. They are guilty. And Mosiah is saying to Alma, this ain't a government thing. This government will no longer be punishing people based on their sins. It's the responsibility of who to punish their sins. It's the church. Because adultery, now to us, for Messiah, is no longer a, it's still a sin, but it, but it is no longer a crime punishable by the state. That's huge. That is a major split in the way that the government will now operate. It is a separating out of a church function of believers and, and a government that is government over an awful lot of believers of the Mulekites and everybody else who aren't believers, but we still have a responsibility to government over these non-believers. And if they don't believe that adultery is a sin, then kick them out of the church. But we're not going to behead them. That makes sense? So it's a separation act. Because in a, in a democracy, in, in a theocracy under a king, you do that. In a democracy, you don't. You live alongside people that have different beliefs. That makes sense? Okay. All right. So he's going to he's going to say, okay. Uh, Mosiah says, I judge them not. I deliver unto your hands to be judged. Uh, and Al Alma was worried. He feared that he should do wrong in the sight of God. And, uh, and now we're going to get... Uh, I believe that for these, these people ahead of the coming of the Savior, they, they had kind of a handbook of instructions. And I think they, or a doctrine of covenants, I think they had section 1 and section 2. I can't find many more. But uh, two specific... Section 1 and Section 2, or Handbook 1 and Handbook 2. Handbook 1, we get under King Benjamin, right? And King Benjamin's address is a way, to, as, as, as was Alma's, King Benjamin's address was a way to prepare people for baptism. Prepare them, get them ready, teach them the gospel of love, all those kind of things. That's one. Now, here comes Handbook 2. This, this is the handbook that only the bishops get. And the state presidents get. And we get it, and, and we're going to see it here in Mosiah 26. He pours out the voice of the Lord is going to say it. Speak unto him, and right at the bottom here, um, he's going to say, oh, verse 33. And it came to pass that Alma heard these things. He wrote them down that he might have them and he might judge the people of the church according to the commandments of God. So now we have two written documents that they can work off of. King Benjamin's address. And we have this revelation that comes to Alma. That's why I call it section 1 and section 2. Or Hamlet 1 and Hamlet. Alright, that's it. So let's, let's go to this revelation here. Blessed art thou Alma, blessed are those who are baptized in the waters of Mormon, thou wilt be blessed because of thy exceeding faith. Uh, blessed art thou because thou hast established a church. Blessed is this people who are willing to bear my name. 
Um, Thou art my servant. I covenant with thee that thou shalt have eternal life. In all likelihood, this is the giving of the sealing power to power. You get this kind of sealing. We only have this at just a few times in the scriptures where the Lord makes an express thing to say, you will now have eternal life. Certainly Nephi in Helaman is going to have it. Alma the Younger, I think, has it. That also be his calling and election. Sure is, yeah. And, and so if you're going to be the prophet, I'm going to give this to you because I'm going to give you some certain powers of what you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. And, and specifically, if you're going to start making some decisions about who's in the church and who's not, I need you to be able to have that binding power that I will honor in heaven. Okay? So you're, you're, now, you're now getting a, a prophet authority. You now hold all the keys. Okay, now, I love that the Savior is going to describe himself in 23. You, you want the, uh, uh, the best description of, of the Savior? Look at this, 23. For it is I that taketh upon me the sins of the world. It is I that created them, and it's I that grant them that believeth an end of my place at the right hand. I created them. I atone for their sins and they will live next to me afterwards. That's why I am the Father and the Son. Because I have have both of these functions. Okay? Now, so here's a, so so here this thing comes up. This is, this is one of those little, little, uh, slight little conundrums that I ended up, me the church nerd, ends up stumbling over this thing and having to think about it for a long time. And it's this. Remember in in the the New Testament when the Savior says, uh, in the last days, won't there be many who are going to come unto me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all kinds of things in your name? And, and And he says, and I will answer and say unto them, Depart from me. I never knew you. Now, if I were writing that, just simple me, I would I would have said, Depart from me. You never knew me. You didn't really know me. You didn't really know the gospel. My phrase would have been, You never knew me. But consistently, in all the places through the scripture, the Lord doesn't say that. He says, Depart from me. I never knew you. Now that's an odd phrase, isn't it? Don't we worship a God who is all knowing? How could he not know us? We didn't let him. Did it make ourselves vulnerable for him to know us? How do we make ourselves vulnerable? You're cutting off about three days of my little searching. Great job. Because I kind of fret and stewed and fussed and how, what does it mean that he doesn't know us when he kind of knows us? Well, I found the key in uh, in uh, from Apostle Paul. Paul had the thing that opened the, the door for me on this, and it's it's First Corinthians eight, and so I 
in my in my scriptures I included it above verse 26. I don't know if you can see that. 1 Corinthians 8, 2. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Somebody say that differently. What is it that he's really saying? If a man loves God, and, and by the way, if, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If you love me, you serve. If you love me, all those kind of things. If you love me, he says, if, you, if a man loved me, if a man loved God, then what? He says, the same is known of him. In other words, if you love me, you let me in. If you love me, I get to know you. If you don't love me, your heart hardens, and I stand at the door and knock, and you don't let me in. Yes. And in fact in the old in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, when they when they talk about intimacy, that Abraham is going to be intimate with his wife or Jacob or anybody else, what's the term that they use? And he knew her. I, I love that sense that there is an intimate knowledge that comes under love, that is shared back and forth, that is so close it's very intimate. And we know, uh, and what he's saying is, uh, if you have rejected me, if you haven't kept my commandments, I haven't got to know you. You have kept me out. You pushed me away. Yeah. You, we didn't let him know us. We kept him out. And so what he's saying is, in a sense, uh, 28... Uh, I'm saying unto you, Alma, those that have been seduced by Nahorism and all that, he that will not hear my voice, the same he shall not receive into my church, for I will not receive him. Therefore go, then he, whosoever transgresseth, you'll judge according to the sins he has committed. And if he confesses sins and come and repent, him will, shall ye forgive, and I will forgive him also. Yea, as often as my people repent, I will forgive them their trespasses against me. <clears throat> I, have a wonder, I had a wonderful gentleman a couple weeks ago sitting in my, in my office. Uh, struggling, struggling with uh, pornography. And it, and it, it doesn't do it very often. But when he, when he has a relapse, he really, really struggles. And I've and I watched him struggle, and finally I'm saying, where is this coming from? And he said, well... I remember years ago my bishop told me that if I ever, that when I do this I need to repent. But if I ever do it again, it's proof that I never really repented. And I said, so you kind of live on a razor edge. So what about things five years ago and ten years ago? What about sins from five years and ten years ago? Well, if it's the same sin, 
then all of that then suddenly descends down upon me. Uh, wow. So that, that's, a, that's a pretty hard place to be. And we went back, and I, and I showed him from the scriptures. I said, I, I, you had a good bishop. He, here's what he, he was drawn from. It's section 82, the Doctrine of Covenants. And I, I won't go there now, but I'm just saying. You need to understand, and, and listen in your heart while I tell you this. That when the Lord said, I, the Lord, remember them no more, He means it. He really means it. And you did with all your heart repent. Now, and then I said, and that, so His assignment was, my homework assignment to Him was to read Elder Bednar's talk from this last conference, when he talked about retaining the remission of your sins. And Elder Bednar is saying, to retain the remission of your sins, what do you do? Take the sacrament. Take the sacrament. Go with an open heart and, and take the sacrament and receive again a remission of your sins. And I wish I'd shown him this verse. I had looked at this verse prior to talking to him. Next time I see him again, I'll probably hit him. And he's saying, 30. And as often as my people repent, I will forgive them of their trespasses. You will be surprised how fast God forgives. Now, in sins like struggles like pornography, does that mean that if he starts looking at pornography, all of the habits and cravings and inclinations can come pouring back? It does. It's an addiction. So I said it's possible for you to have cravings and inclinations but it not be a sin. Or it doesn't mean that you haven't been forgiven. You were forgiven for the stuff you repented for. But those habits and those cravings, in the same way that an alcoholic can be clean for 25 years, and then they walk into a bar, they can't socially drink. Because at that point, they don't want one glass of alcohol. They want it all. Those habits come back, and I think that's what the Lord is referring to. But he kind of got really misty-eyed in my office and just said, yeah, you're right. I think that's true. It makes sense. It feels like this is what a loving God would do. So. Anyway, there, let me uh, I'm gonna wrap up just a, a little bit early here, but I wanted to finish with uh, kind of a a story that I think encapsulates what happens when we when we reject kind of the world and we stay kind of where we're really supposed to be with the Spirit. Uh, some of you may have heard this story. It was new, it was new to me. Um, Boyd K. Packer told the story years ago that uh, in the early days of, well, in, in the days when, uh, when the Iron Curtain was still up, that they needed to uh, take a group of brethren and church leaders past the Berlin Wall and, and go into East Germany, I think probably to get to Leipzig, the temple. And he had a group of brethren, and he brought his wife. And they had their passports, and he said back then there were, uh, uh, the they just changed from three-year passports to five-year passports. And so most of the brethren had the new five-year Sister Packer had the old three year, but she still had another year remaining on it, so she could get a new one. Uh, so they, they board a train, 
And just as they're boarding the train to go into East Germany, one of the missionaries there says, uh, Elder Packard, do you have any German money on you? He says, no. And he reached his pocket and he gave him a 20 mark note. And he said, make sure you have this with you. Why? Well, just make sure. So he said they crossed into East Germany, <coughs> and a conductor came on board the train, started walking down the aisle, was looking at everybody's passports, and got to Sister Packer's passport and said, this is no good. We don't accept this. And we accept everybody else's, but we don't accept this one. And it got real tense, and Elder Packer said, on inspiration, he reached into his pocket, he pulled out the 20 mark note, and he handed it to the conductor who said, okay, everything fine. And the train just went on. When they got to the members in East Germany, they told them this story. They thought, kind of funny, kind of had to bribe the, the guard there. And they went, you don't realize what danger you were in. Because they were prepared to throw her off the train. And that's what they do a lot. And he said, yeah, but where would we have gone? They said, no, not all of you, her. They would have kept you on the train, they would have thrown her off the train. So in the middle of the night, Sister Packer would have been in East Germany alongside the tracks with nowhere to go. And a, and a passport that wouldn't be accepted. You don't know how well you were just blessed and guarded. And he said, I was really grateful. And then he adds this little postscript. The elder that gave me the note was David Abel. How would I have known that one day he would be one of my brethren in the twelve? The Lord knows what he's doing. And the Lord raises up people that can kind of stand in the way and make a difference. I believe that each one of us, at this particular moment, are, are watching our rising generation just get attacked by the modern versions of neighborism. That's why the Book of Mormon becomes so relevant to what we're trying to do. My, my hope and my prayer is, is that we recognize the power that we have. That we begin to get, if, if you have had a spiritual conversion to the church, make sure that your kids have it. Make sure that the people around us have it. Not on our own light, but that they have their own lives. So that they can then stand when all of the flattery begins and all the falseness that we pull us away. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Sister Jones, can we call you for closing prayer? Our Father in heaven, we are deeply edified to have been here this day. We are so thankful for the lesson you have and for thy great love and concern for each of us.